Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. We get to see that, say that now that we're past Thanksgiving and into December. So Merry Christmas to the church family. And if you are a guest, we're so thankful to have you here worshiping Christ with us this morning. And just like every week, we try to encourage, if you are a guest, stick six with us, stick six weeks. Uh, take through the holidays, let us get to know you, let you get to know us as a church, and see if this is where God desires for you to be. We're going to be in John 21 today. We're finishing up our series for those of you that are counting, we're almost 40 weeks, this might be week 40, we've been in the series of John, and so here we are, round third, we're coming home, and uh, we'll be in our Christmas series next week, Christmas songs, where we'll look at the very first Christmas, the songs that were sung to praise and to worship our King Jesus. So we're getting there, uh, and so if you're upset, you're like, oh, we're not getting a Christmas sermon today, that's all right, we got it coming, the series is coming, and, and don't think I'm uh, Scrooge. We've had our Christmas decorations up since the beginning of November, okay? So I've been in the Christmas spirit. We're getting there. Some of you hate me right now. Uh, some of you are, yeah, that's right. We should have started in October. But we're getting there with Christmas, and as we start in John 21, honestly, because Christmas is on my mind, and as I'm reading John 21, I find this passage um, reminds me of the song that we sang when we started today, the very first song that we sung this morning. Uh, heart the herald angels sing. It's one that we're very familiar with, that we hear every Christmas season. Uh, but in there, it starts in the first line, heart the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. It's a beautiful line, a beautiful line. But this can seem um, like an abstract lyric Unless we make it concrete, unless we understand what it means for God and sinners to be reconciled. And that's what I think is beautiful about John 21, because John 21 is that concrete moment where we see what it looks like for God Almighty to reconcile sinners to him. And we're going to see that as Jesus interacts with Peter. We're going to see God, Jesus, reconciled to the sinner whose name is Peter. And what we're going to find as we read John 21 is there are a lot of implications from this chapter for people just like you and just like me. And so this is good for us to think about this passage even as we come into the Christmas season. So let's start in verse 1 and we'll actually read all 25 verses this morning. It says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of the Canaan of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat that night and they caught nothing. And just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this book, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, which he had stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but only about a hundred yards off. 
when they got out of the, on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. The fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and let's have breakfast. Now not one of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time, the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you, carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. It's John again. And he said, uh, the one whom he had said when he leaned back against him at supper, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. But Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is it to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness of these things, who's writing these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now verse 25, which is one of the greatest closings to any of the books in the Bible. It says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Merciful Lord God, you are the Alpha and the Omega. You're the beginning and the end. Our hearts long for your mercy today. Help us to exchange our, our shame for your saving love. Help us to exchange our failures for your faithfulness. Lord, we praise you for pursuing us, even in our faults and even in our sin. And Lord, we ask today that you would help us to understand the beauty of this passage, how you, God, would reconcile sinners. We ask you would speak to us now. Let me invite you in this moment of silence, to pray as well, that you would pray that God would speak to you. No matter where you are in your spiritual walk, whether you know the Lord or whether you don't, whether you've been walking with him for years, would you just pray now that God would speak to you today through John chapter 21. Pray that right now.
Lord Jesus, you know week after week after week we've prayed as we've opened the Gospel of John that you would help us to believe and live. Because that is what this book says its purpose is. And so, Lord, even today as we go to the end of this book and we close it out, God, help us to see who you are, to believe in that truth. And as we believe that you would help us to live. God, I ask that you would speak through weakness now to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. All right, this passage that I read to us this morning, it starts and it says, after this. That's setting up what just happened, which Pastor Brandon spoke on last week where Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And he comes back and he speaks to his followers' fears and their tears and their doubts. He pursues his disciples in every one of those different areas, their fears, their tears, and their doubts. And then at the very end of John 21, it, it gives us the purpose statement that we've seen each week in John as we've started the series. It says it in verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. It tells us this is the reason all of this was written, that we would believe and that we would have life in his name. Now this would have been a great ending to the, the gospel of John. Like why didn't John just stop right here? Christ is resurrected from the grave. That's amazing. That's an, an, a, a miracle. And it's here he ends and he says this statement, kind of wraps it all up. All these things were written, every bit of it, so that you would believe and have life. Like, that would be a great place to stop. So why is it that John gives us one more chapter? Why is it that John chooses to add chapter 21 by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Why did he do that? Well, I find it fascinating. We don't know for sure, but what I believe is John tells us all of this was written so that you believe. Many of us have taken that step of faith to believe in Jesus and have found eternal life and abundant life. But then what John does in, verse 21, in chapter 21 is he says, all right, now that many of you have believed and lived, you're going to fail and you're going to mess up and there's going to be shame in your life even as you war and you battle against the sin that you're trying to die to. When you look at your life and you're like, I believe, but the things I'm trying to do, I don't find myself doing, and the things I don't want to do, those are the things I keep doing over and over and over again. So John, as he closes out his book, he's like, I want to speak to you. Those of you that need comfort, those of you that are feeling shame, those of you that have guilt, those of you that are dealing with anxiety of your life, Jesus wants to speak to you. And so John writes at the end this beautiful picture of how God and sinners are reconciled together. And just like every week as we've gone through the Gospel of John, there's truths for us to believe, and as we believe, we live. And the first truth I want us to grasp from this passage today is this, that Jesus gently, he gently restores those who repent. Jesus gently restores those who repent. Now verse 14 tells us that, that this moment that we read in chapter 20 is the third time, the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples. Now why that matters is because I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Peter. Peter the disciple that denied Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. And the third time, scripture tells us that Jesus looks over and sees Peter, looks Peter in the face as Peter denies Jesus. Now Jesus has defeated death. He's resurrected. He's interacted with his disciples multiple times. And yet there hasn't been a mending of this relationship that we know of. 
there hasn't been a, a restoration of Peter. And this whole moment, the third time that Jesus shows up, is where he looks at Peter and he restores him. He restores him, and he does it in a very gentle way. Now, it's fascinating what Jesus does to restore Peter. He brings three, three scenes from the life of Peter, and he makes them all happen right here at the Sea of Galilee. These three times that have happened three, throughout the three years of ministry that Jesus walked with Peter, we find all smashed together right here in John 21. And what Jesus is doing for Peter is he's allowing Peter to turn and repent and find the restoration that he longs for. And the first scene that, that Jesus intentionally steps into is the scene of fishing. Fishing. The first time that we see Jesus show up to his disciples, it's in the town. It's in Jerusalem. But here is the Sea of Galilee. This is a, a, a little ways away. And Jesus chooses the Sea of Galilee because he's trying to highlight a moment that happened in the life of Peter to remind him of something. So he chooses fishing. Now, he could have chose anything, but he chooses fishing. And, and honestly, it was Peter's decision to even go back to fish, right? They've seen the resurrected Christ, and now they don't know what to do. Most people think that Peter's feeling this shame because there hasn't been a mending of the relationship yet. And so he's like, well, okay, Christ has risen from the grave. There hasn't been the great commission given to them yet. So, like, what are we supposed to do? So what he does is he says, I'm going to go back to, to what I knew before Christ. I'm just going to go back to fishing because that's what he did for a living beforehand. I'm just going to go back to, to fishing. And the other disciples, some of them were fishermen, some of them weren't. And they're like, okay, we'll just go with you, right? Many believe this is driven because of the shame that he feels. I don't know what Christ thinks of me yet. I don't know how I'm going to mend this relationship, so I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before Christ called me. Now, they don't know yet that it's Christ standing there on the shore. They don't know. They've been out fishing all night, and they've caught nothing. Now, like I said, these are scenes from the life of Peter that Christ is bringing back. If you go back to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5, some of y'all have read it or are familiar with it. The first time that Peter interacts with Jesus, it's the same scene. It's the same scene. Peter has been out fishing all night long, and he has caught nothing. Big goose egg, zero. And there he is on the dock, and he's mending his net, which is clean because he hasn't caught anything. And Jesus walks up and he's like, hey, I've got to preach and I need a podium. And your boat would be a great podium for me to, to go out on this water and to preach to this crowd. So Peter, get back in the boat, even though I know you've caught nothing. And let's go on out there and I'm going to preach this message. And so Peter, I guess he's like, my boat's pretty clean. I've got some spare time since we didn't bring any fish in. So yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll guide you out there. So he goes out there and Jesus preaches this message of the good news, the gospel, that God and sinners can be reconciled together. And as he does this, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, depart from me, for I am not a good person. I'm a sinner. Depart from me. And Jesus looks back at Peter and he says, you follow me. I know that you're a sinner. You follow me. 
and he tells Peter, throw the net off this side of the boat. I know you caught nothing last night. Throw that net out and see what you catch. And you remember what happened in Luke 5? They catch a ton of fish. It's the, the first moment where Peter and Jesus are interacting. And now Jesus is recreating that scene by telling them, hey, you haven't caught any fish? Throw that net on the other side. Throw it on the right side of the boat. Now, I don't know a lot about fishing, but I do know this. That under the boat, there's no left and right side to fish, right? It's just a sea. <laughs> That's where fish kind of hang out and swim. So they don't know, like, oh, let's hang out on the right side of the boat. And, and you got to think these professional fishermen right here are listening to this guy that they don't know is Jesus say, hey, throw the net on the right side of the boat. And they've got to be thinking, what? You're some stranger on the shore. We're in a boat. We know what we're doing. We know how to fish. And I don't know if it was faith or just blind luck to say, let's just give it a try. And they throw that net on the other side and they catch all of these fish again. Jesus is helping to relive this scene so that Peter remembers the one who has called him. The one who has called him. The one who knows his sin. The one who knows his shame. He's like, yeah, remember that. And remember my calling for you to follow me. And Jesus, the first time, says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter, I know you're a sinner. I know you're broken. I know that you're not perfect. And still come and follow me. I have a plan for you. And here again, he says, hey, cast that net on the other side. Cast the net. And they see through this moment that he's calling him to follow him again. Now, I want you to remember what Peter said in Luke chapter 5, because it's extremely important. When he sees all that Jesus has done and heard what Jesus has preached, what he says is, depart from me, I'm a sinner. And yet, right here, same scene, same scene, but his response this time is much different. Peter doesn't say, away from me, Jesus, because I'm a sinner. Did Peter know he was a sinner? Yeah, it's really fresh on his mind. This was just a few days earlier that he's denying Jesus, and Jesus looks him in the eye in the moment of his sin. So why is it this time that Peter doesn't shout, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner? I believe the difference is this. Peter has walked with Jesus for three plus years. He has seen the great love and grace of Jesus. He has seen Jesus die on the cross, hang on a cross for his sins and his mistakes. He has now seen Jesus resurrected, defeating the curse of sin and the grave and death. And now that he knows Jesus in a deeper way, he doesn't hide for Jesus in his sin. He runs to Jesus in his sin. He's running to Jesus to repent of his sin. He sees him on the shore, and when he knows it's the Lord, he grabs his coat and he puts it on, and he jumps into the water, and he swims to Christ. He's not running from Jesus in his sins. He's running to Jesus. How about you? 
when you know that you have sinned, when it is fresh on your mind and on your heart, do you run and hide from Jesus or do you run to Jesus? You see, religion is different than the gospel. And religion will tell you that when you sin and you have shame and you have guilt, you better hide yourself from God. You better run away, get your fig leaves, sew them together, and hide from God. That's what religion will say to do until you've cleaned yourself up and now you can walk back into the presence of God. That is not what the gospel says. The gospel says you bring your sin and your shame and your guilt and you bring it to the one that died for it. That hung on the cross to die for your sin. And not just to die for it, but to defeat it as he resurrected from the grave. And defeated the curse of sin. You bring it to him. You don't run from him. Do you bring your sin to Christ or do you hide from him when it's fresh in your mind? What do you do? Now, knowing this truth of the gospel is not a license for us to sin. Well, I'm just going to continue to sin, that God's grace may abound, and I'll continue to sin because he'll continue to forgive me. He will, but he gently restores those who repent, those who turn their back on their sin and turn towards their Savior. Those that stop gazing into their sin and longing for that, but start to long and to gaze into Jesus Christ's eyes. That is what we find here. Peter's no longer saying, depart from me, I'm a sinner, but I need Jesus so though my sin is fresh, I will run to him that he would forgive me. So the first scene is fishing. But the second scene that Christ recreates is around fire. It's around fire. It says in verse 9 that there's a charcoal fire in place. There's only two times in the entire New Testament where it talks about a charcoal fire. The other time is in John chapter 18. We talked about it just a few weeks ago. John chapter 18, verse 18. Peter has denied Christ twice, and now he's there warming himself by the fire. And it says in John 18 that this is a charcoal fire. As he's there warming himself, then he denies Christ again. He denies Christ again. Jesus could have picked any type of fire. You know, a log fire is a great and common fire during the first century. But he chooses a charcoal fire, and I believe it's intentional. As Peter gets out of the water and he's soaking wet and he sees Christ, I just imagine that smell going into his nostrils again. And Peter remembering, I've denied Christ. I've denied Christ. Now, I don't think that Jesus is doing this to shame Peter. That's not how God works. God is not about shame. He will convict us of our, our sin, but he doesn't try to shame us. That's what the evil one does. That's what the accuser does. He loves for us to look at our sin in our life and just, he loves to beat us up with generalities and shame. Like, you're just a terrible husband, or you're just a terrible person, or you're such a failure. And the evil one will talk about all these generalities. That is not how God works when we mess up. What God does is he speaks in specifics. Yeah, that time when you lied to your wife, yeah, that's a sin you need to repent and turn from. That's what you need to turn from. That time where you lusted and you looked at that, no, that's got to end. That's got to stop, and you have to turn from that to something else. That time where you were greedy and selfish instead of being generous to help somebody in need, yeah, that's what's got to change. God always calls us out 
in specifics so that we would repent. He convicts us that we would change. And the evil one loves to look at us and just shame us in generalities. You know why? Because you can't fix a generality. That just beats you down. That's where he loves to keep you. And Christ is not trying to, convict, uh, to, to shame Peter, but to convict Peter of his sin. So that he'll change, that he'll repent. So he chooses a charcoal fire. He chooses a charcoal fire. Now both with the scene of fishing and both with this fire, what we find is that Jesus creates events to get our attention. To get our attention. Jesus lets them catch all these fish so that they remember. So Peter remembers the moment where Jesus calls him. And then he sets the charcoal fire there that would have been a a reminder of his denial and his sin, not to shame him, but that he would change him. And he does it in order to get his attention. Peter, listen up. You have to see this. You have to understand your sin in this. And Jesus still works in the same ways today. He brings different events in our lives to get our attention. For many of us, he is shaking us to get our attention. And some of the events he uses are hard, difficult times of suffering and pain in order to get our attention. There are many times God will take us through a temporal hell in order to save us from an eternal hell. And there's other times that God will use events that are great times of blessing and abundance. And we look at it and we're like, this is amazing. All these things have happened to me. And God will use both of those to get our attention so that we would look to him, that we would respond to him as he's trying to bring us near. As he's trying to bring us back to him. So the question is, as Jesus tries to get your attention, how are you responding? Are you repenting of your sins as he shakes you to get your attention? Are you being obedient to the commands that he's calling you to do? Or are you passive to the events that God's using? The events that God's using to try to gently restore you into a right relationship with him. How are we responding to the events that God places intentionally in our lives? The third part that Jesus recreates in this time with Peter is, is around a meal. A meal, and specifically the meal of breakfast. Breakfast. Now, we've all heard of the Last Supper. I don't know if many of you have heard of the Last Breakfast. But this is it. This is the Last Breakfast, Okay. Some of the same language that has used when Jesus sat with his disciples and they broke bread. And he says, this is my body that's going to be given to you. We find right here. It says that Jesus takes the bread. He took it in verse 13. And he gave it to them. And so with the fish. And I love that Jesus chooses this time of day at breakfast to restore Peter. And to encourage Peter. Because Peter, every day since he's denied Christ, he's probably woke up to hear the rooster crow and remember that that's when he denied Christ. Remember that. The third time he died, he hears the rooster crow. That guilt and that shame would have met Peter every single morning. And maybe he's getting out on a boat that day so he doesn't have to hear the rooster crow. And Jesus chooses breakfast time in order to, to drive home this truth. 
of repent and believe and be restored. So as they're there and they're eating breakfast, Jesus looks at Peter and he calls him Simon. Simon. Now, John's gospel is the only one that does this. But remember, Simon was his name and Jesus changes his name to Peter. He's like, you're a rock, you're a strong leader. I'm going to use you within the church that you're going to grow and, 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 and you're going to do amazing things for me. So I'm not going to call you Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. But throughout the gospel of John, what you find is anytime Peter screws up, Jesus always calls him by his old name. He always calls him Simon. Peter will say something crazy and he's like, Simon, come over here, we got to fix this. But when he says something true or something right, he always calls him Peter to affirm, yes, this is the new man. This is the one you need to be following, right? This is the one you need to be like. And here, over breakfast, he says, Simon, highlighting again, not to shame, but the reality that he's a sinner. With each one of those, he says, do you love me? Now, the disciples that had heard Jesus call him Simon so many times, I just picture them being there, and I don't know if this is true, but I just picture them being there, kind of eating their fish and eating the bread, and then they hear, Simon? And the disciples kind of pause for a second. They look at him and they're like, it's about to go down. <laughs> like this whole thing that nobody's talked about yet, Peter denied him three times. Like it's about to happen right now. This whole issue is about to bubble up to the surface. As they're sitting there, he says, Simon, do you love me? He asks him three times. Now, there, to be totally honest, there is some debate with scholars over some of the Greek language that's being used here and whether it has significance or not, but I, I truly believe it does. You see, in, in, the, in the Greek language, there's about five words that they use to talk about love, each intentionally highlighting a certain aspect of love. And there's this one word, uh, phileo, which is where we get our word Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love, right? And that's a word that they would use at that time to talk about brotherly love, phileo. And there's another common word, agape, which was an unconditional love, a love that, that's like a committed love, love that will never leave somebody, a love that is there indefinitely. And Jesus, the first two times he asks Simon, do you love me, Jesus uses the, the word agape. And when the king of all creation looks at you and says, do you love me unconditionally, there's only one answer to that question. <laughs> there's only one answer, yes, you're the Lord of my life, you're the one that came from heaven to earth. You died in my place. You defeated my sin. And so, yes, Jesus, as you have risen from the grave, absolutely, I love you unconditionally. But when Jesus says to Peter, do you agape me? Peter responds and says, you know I phileo you. I brotherly love you, Jesus. I can't say unconditionally, but I, but I, but I love you. So Jesus asks a second time, do you agape me? And Peter responds the same way, you know I phileo you. You know I brotherly love you. And Jesus, in his gentleness to restore Peter, he stoops low. We shouldn't be surprised by this because God Almighty has always stooped low to save sinners and to reconcile to sinners. So the third time... John writes for us that Jesus says, all right, Peter, 
And I'll stoop to your level to love you and to care for you. Peter, do you fillet me? Do you brotherly love me? And Peter's like, you know I fillet you. You know I brotherly love you. And Jesus stoops low to restore Peter, to care for him. And it tells us that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? That's what verse 17 tells us. And that's similar language that we see when Jesus sees Peter deny him for the third time. It said that Peter was sorrowful and grieved and he runs away. And this time is a recreation of that time where he denied him. And now Jesus tells him again, do you love me? For the third time. Now this is not, I cannot say it enough, this is not to guilt and to shame Peter. This is to call for change and repentance. And the reason why we know that is because every time that Jesus asked Peter this question, he never points backwards. He always points forwards. Always. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes. And he's like, okay, then, then what I want you to do is feed my lambs. And then he asks him again, and, G- and Peter's like, yes, you know, I love you. And Jesus doesn't point back and be like, do you really love me? Because remember, you deny me three times, and do you really love me? He doesn't say that. He doesn't have to say that. Jesus points forward to the future again, and he says, tend my sheep. And then the third time, the exact same thing. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Jesus is always pointing forward. Peter, though you have sinned, though you have failed, though you have messed up, you don't live there forever. That doesn't define you. I'm going to use you. I'm not just going to restore you. I'm not just going to allow you to be a part of the church and you sit on the sidelines. I'm going to use you to feed my sheep, to care for the church, to lead my people. This is the beauty of Christ, to be so gentle, to restore him. To be so gentle, to pour grace out on the wounds of Peter's failure. For me, as I'm praying this week, for myself and as I'm praying for you, my prayer is that Jesus would lead us today to plunge our failure into his grace. Would we take our failures and plunge them into the grace of Jesus, knowing that he has loved us even when we did not love him. When we were faithless, he was faithful. And he's being faithful to Peter again. So let us bring all of our failures, all of our sins, all of our guilt, and all of our shame to Jesus who extends to us grace and restores when we repent of our sin. The second truth I want us to believe today and live is this. Jesus lovingly sends those he restores. Jesus lovingly sends those he restores. He doesn't just restore Peter. Like I said, puts him on the sidelines. He sends Peter out. And he does this with the saying, follow me. Follow me. When he called Peter the first time, that follow me was a a sending mentality. He says, I will make you fishers of men. You're going to go share the gospel and you're going to see people believe and live. And so when he says, follow me, this is not a passive thing. This is an active thing to live on mission for Jesus. And he looks at Peter again. He says, you follow me. Be a fisher of men again. He's restoring him. But at the same time, he is sending him. And as he restores him and as he calls him 
to go, he tells them it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. After he tells them to feed my sheep in verse 18, he says, when you were young, you got to go where you wanted to go and you did what you were going to do. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and somebody else will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John, who's writing this about 50 years after it's happened, verse 19, he tells us what Jesus meant with that saying. He says he's saying this because it's telling what kind of death he was going to glorify God. We don't often think about our death being a way to glorify God, but even how we die is a way that we glorify God. And he uses, Jesus, in verse 18, uses this word stretching out hands. The last time that was used was to speak about Christ having his hands stretched out on the cross. And what we know from church history is that 65 A.D., Nero crucified Peter, crucified him. All Peter had to do, all Peter had to do was to do something he had already done in the past and deny Jesus. Nero said, just deny Jesus as Lord and King and I'll let you go. I won't crucify you. And Peter knows what we have to know today. It's that Christ doesn't always make our life better so we follow him. No, no, no. We follow him because he's better than life itself. He's better than life itself. And the prosperity of gospel is, is sad and it's peddled widely in our, our culture today. Is if you follow Jesus, then you'll get all the cash and prizes you want. And many of us will come and try to follow Jesus in order to get the promotion or in order to get good moral kids, in order to, to get that marriage. And Jesus is not going to be an ends to our idol. That's not how he works. I'm going to follow Jesus in order to get these things up here that are more important to me than Christ. He's not a means to the end. He is the end. And Peter knew that so much so. He's like, I don't even care about what my life has to offer. I ask that the only thing is this. When you crucify me, you don't crucify me in the exact same way that Jesus died. Because I'm not worthy to die like he did. Would you crucify me upside down? And they did. Peter knew and believed the truth. It's going to cost me to follow Christ. But I don't follow Christ because he makes my life better, but because he's better than life. Now, as this command that Jesus gives, which is an amazing command for Peter, would you tend my sheep, would you care for the church, and would you follow me? This, this command to follow him and to live on mission, Peter does what many of us do. God has called many of us to respond in faith and to believe and live today, and we'll do the same thing Peter does. We'll, we'll start to deflect. We get nervous, we get afraid, and we'll start to deflect to other things. So Jesus says, follow me, and Peter's like, man, you're telling me I'm going to stretch out my hands, I'm going to die this way? What about, uh, what about this guy over here? What about John? What about him, right? He completely defects from this great command that Jesus has given him, and he starts to talk about John. Jesus looks back at Peter in verse 21 and then 22. He says, if it's my will that he never dies until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. Some of us are deflecting what Christ is calling you to do today. Christ has maybe called some of us to take steps of faith to lead our family. Maybe many of us men need to be leading our wives better in the word or praying for them or loving our kids and leading them to follow Christ. And yet, for some moms and some dads, we think, 
man, you're calling me to do that, but I'll never be as good as that person. Look at how much better they lead their family. Look at all the godly things they do. I can't be them. There's no way. I can't do it. And so we start to compare ourselves to other people so that we don't move forward. And Jesus would look at us and say, no, you follow me. You don't worry about that person. You follow me. God has called some of us to, to be lights, or all of us as believers, to be lights in our workplace. Or maybe you're a student for your school, and you're thinking, I know I'm supposed to be a light for Christ in my school or my workplace, but, like, I'm not popular. Like, I don't play the sports, and nobody, not everybody loves me, and I'm not the most popular one. But, you know, what about that person? They're better, and they're more popular. Jesus says, no, 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 you stop focusing on them, and you follow me. You do what I have called you to do. For some of us, Jesus is saying, would you believe in me today? Would you repent of your sins and be restored and in your mind right now, you're deflecting. You're like, well, my friend's not a believer yet. My, my wife is not a believer. My spouse, I, I, I can't, not until they're, they're in there and, and, and they're believing. And Jesus would say, no, stop worrying about them and you follow me. Throughout this entire book of John, Jesus has called us to so many things. And he has looked at us through many of passages and said, you follow me. Follow me through praise. Follow me through repentance. Follow me by being a light as I have been. You follow me. So what I want to do as we close today is something different. We don't normally do this, but because we're ending the Gospel of John, I want to give us time to respond to Christ and to follow him. So we're going to have just a few moments as the band comes and plays where we are just going to pray and respond to Jesus and say, yes, I want to repent of these sins. So you restore me and I want to follow you in this area. And for some of us, that means that we're going to take a step of faith to trust in Jesus Christ for the very first time. And if that's you, then use this time to pray to him. Or you can even head back to next steps and we'll have somebody back there that will be willing to pray with you and for you. Or if you just have a burden on your heart and you're saying, I just kind of want to lay that down, then come down front if you want to. Use this time to pray. Pray to him. What we want to do is we leave today, our congregation, or as you finish up online, is we want to be obedient to follow him, to believe and live. So you'll see on the screen a couple points that if you're not sure what to pray or how to pray, that will help guide you as you Think through the series of the Gospel of John, ways to praise the Lord, ways to ask God to, to change your heart and your life through the truths that we've learned through this 40-week series in the Gospel of John. And so church family, let's use this moment of silence to pray and to respond and to follow Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment right now and let's pray in silence.